Amen. Thank you, Lee. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. This will be our last week in the book of Titus. Next week, we'll start a new sermon series on the book of Judges, which we will be in for the summer, spending some time in the Old Testament. But today, we're in Titus chapter 3, which is in the New Testament. There are those five books that all start with the letter T, first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, then Titus. We've said if you get to Philemon or Hebrews or James, you've gone too far. So we're in Titus chapter 3, and as we have been in the book of Titus, we have seen that the apostle Paul has written to Titus, who's on the island of Crete, and he has given him instructions about what life in the church should look like. He has instructed Titus on the qualifications for officers in the church, what types of people he should be looking for. And we said that's really relevant for us, seeing as how we will be electing officers today. Uh, we saw in Titus chapter 2 that Paul talked about what the church should teach different groups of people within the church and what kind of attitude and actions that Christian folks should display as we represent Christ in the world around us when we go outside of the church. And so we continue that thought today as we talk about the attitude and actions that Christians should have toward government and the attitude and actions Christians should have toward everyone in the community. So we'll look at those two things in Titus chapter 3. And then I won't just leave you there with what God says to do as far as toward our government and our duties toward society at large. But then we're going to look at this marvelous statement of the gospel which empowers us to do the things that God calls us to do. So let's look at those three things together. First, what kind of attitude and actions should Christians have toward government? It's interesting. If you read about the history of this island of Crete, Historians tell us that Crete had a history of revolts and insurrection and riots. Sounds kind of like the place where we live, where there are insurrections and riots that take place. The Romans had occupied Crete since about 67 BC, so they'd been under Roman rule for about 100 years, and the Cretans were constantly impatient with the Romans ruling over them. And so the Apostle Paul, when he was there on the island of Crete, had told them that they needed to be subject to the governing authorities and that they should obey the governing authorities. And then as Paul writes this letter, he tells Titus to remind the folks there to have that same kind of attitude. Look with me in Titus chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. I wonder what you think when you hear those instructions from the Word of God for the people of God. I suppose the general principle is expressed more fully in Romans chapter 13 where we're told there and the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Rome, the very seat of power in the Roman Empire, that the governing authorities that exist have been established by God. And it's not an accident that we have the authorities ruling over us that we have ruling over us. I wonder, do you see the governing authorities in your life in this way? 
in the home. Kids, do you see your parents? Hey, these are the people God has given me to shape me into the person that God wants me to be. At school, do you look at teachers and parents as, hey, these are the authorities that God has given me. He has put them here. Bosses at work. And then, of course, governing authorities, the government officials. Do you see the authorities in your life in this way that they've been established by God? Many times we think, oh, not these guys. They're bad. These parents are awful. These teachers are terrible. These governing officials are horrible. Well, think about the folks Paul was writing about, or Peter in 1 Timothy 2, when we looked at at that book. He's writing about Roman emperors like Nero and some really bad guys who were pagan kinds of people. And yet Paul says that even those governing authorities that exist have been established by God and that we are to give them proper respect, we're to submit to their authority and obey what they say because God has put them in authority over us. Now the Bible is clear that our first loyalty is to God and then to the government that God has established and delegated his authority to. So if the government ever oversteps its bounds such that our duty to government and our duty to God are at odds with each other, then what Peter said in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 would apply to us, that we must obey God rather than men. But the general rule is that we obey government. If I don't have chapter and verse saying that this thing the government is doing is wrong, then I would submit to the governing authorities, that I would obey what they have to say. Paul goes even further than saying we just obey the government. Do you see what he says there? He says be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. Paul in Romans chapter 13 and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 both say that it is the role of government to punish those who do evil and to reward those who do good. So as God's people, we should cooperate with government and be eager, not reluctant, to do what is good. We cannot cooperate with government whenever it promotes evil instead of punishing it or opposes good instead of rewarding it. But the general rule is that we're to be ready to do whatever is good and to support our government when it is taking its proper role under the authority of God not violating the scripture, rewarding those who do good, and punishing those who do evil. Paul goes further and talks not just about our attitudes and actions that we should have toward government, but he talks about the attitudes and actions we should have toward everyone in the community. I'll read verse 1 again and then then verse 2 to continue the thought process. I think you'll see the transition. Paul writes to Titus, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Verse 2, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility toward all men or all people. Do you see how universal this is? Paul says slander no one, to show true humility toward all all people. So he's broadened the scope here and he's talking about the attitude and actions that we as Christians should have towards everyone in our community. And he lists about four things here 
that we should be faithful to do as we live and move and have our being as we interact with people in our community. So let's look at those four things together. What does he say? The first one, he says, to slander no one. That means that we would not speak falsehood, that we would speak the truth. Also remembering, I remind us, that we speak the truth in love. Sometimes when we're honest, we are brutally honest. And the scripture tells us that we're to speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love, that we would be gracious in our truth-telling and that we would slander no one. We would not say things that are false against anyone. That means as Christians, we need to be careful about what we say about people. When we repeat what we've heard someone else say, we need to be careful, to be diligent that what we are saying is the truth and that we speak the truth in love. The second thing Paul says here is to slander no one to be peaceable. It's actually a, a word in the negative. It, it, the, the Greek word here means to avoid quarreling. So we're peaceable by the way we avoid quarreling. So we should have conversations with folks. It's even okay to disagree with people. But we're called to avoid quarreling, not to fight with them, not to argue with them, but to be peaceable in the conversations and even the disagreements that we have. Paul goes on. He says to be peaceable and considerate. It's a word that means gentle, a word that means gracious. So we're going to avoid quarreling. We're going to be considerate and gentle and gracious. And then he says to show true humility toward all men. It's a word, this word humility almost means a, a, a courtesy, to show all courtesy to all people. It's a heavy burden, isn't it? Because sometimes people just really get on our last nerve, don't they? And the temptation is that we want to let them have it. Especially when we're not looking them in the eyeball. Maybe it's online or on social media. We really want to pull out the both guns and let them have it with both barrels. But the scripture calls us to be peaceable, to avoid quarreling, to be considerate and gentle and gracious, to show true humility, to show all courtesy to all people, regardless if we agree with them. Regardless if they agree with our politics. Regardless of whether they are kind and gentle towards us. Regardless of their religion or their race or their socioeconomic status. Regardless of their sexual preference. Regardless of their preferred pronouns. Or whatever it is that gets under your skin, there's no qualification here that we're to show all courtesy to all people. And that's what the people of God are called to do and to be as we are ambassadors of Christ and represent him in our community and in our culture. Now, why should we behave that way? What is it that helps us do that? Where's the, the empowerment? Because these things are hard to do. Why does the scripture say that we should behave in this way? It's really interesting. If you've got the ESV, the beginning of verse 3 says for. The, the, the Greek preposition here is the Greek preposition gar. It's sometimes 
translated because or for. And so it's linking the thought in verse 3 with what he just said in verse 2. We're to show all courtesy to all people. Why? For, verse 3, because at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Do you hear the flow of thought? That we're peaceable, that we're gentle, that we're gracious, that we show true humility, even with people who don't deserve it, even with people who are unkind to us, because we ourselves were once slanderous. We ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by our passions and our desires. The text goes on, we're going to look at it in a minute, to say we were once this way, but God saved us. And God has changed us by his indwelling Holy Spirit. We're going to see as we keep studying the passage. And so we're gentle and gracious and considerate of all people, even those who don't deserve it, especially those who don't deserve it. Why? Because we ourselves have received the kindness and the grace and the mercy and the gentleness of God when we did not deserve it. And so that empowers us to extend that grace and mercy and kindness and compassionate to other people when they did not deserve it. Listen, if you're having trouble being gentle and gracious, if you're having trouble being considerate to all people in all places at all times, then you need to remember to focus on to experience again the grace and mercy of God toward you so that you are enabled to extend that kind of grace and mercy to others. In fact, let's take some time to do that right now. Paul, beginning in verse 4, he just said we're foolish, and we'll look at that in a second. But from verses 4 to 7, there's this one long sentence in the Greek. In my translation, it's divided into two sentences, but it's one long sentence, it's one long idea. Because Paul just unfolds the glory of our salvation. This is one of the greatest statements about our salvation in all of the Bible. So let's take a few moments just to, to swim in it, to bask in it, to bathe in it, to let it wash over us, to allow it to change our hearts. So in the time I've got left, I'm going to look quickly at six things about our salvation that Paul says here. If you're a note taker, I'll repeat them, but basically I want to talk about why it's necessary, what's the need of our salvation where it comes from, what's the source of our salvation, what's it based on, what's the basis of our salvation, how it comes to us, what's the means of our salvation, what it leads to, what's the goal of our salvation, and how we know we've got it, what's the proof of this salvation. Let's look at those things quickly together. First, why is salvation necessary? What is the need for salvation? Well, verse 3 tells us, because at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. 
We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Think about that with me. We were foolish and disobedient. That means mentally, in our minds, and our thinking, we were foolish. But it wasn't just our thought life. We were actually disobedient. That we were actually wrong in the things that we did and our actions that were both mentally and morally corrupt, depraved, wicked, perverted, not living life the way God designed it to be lived. And then he says, interestingly, that we were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Those verbs, deceived and enslaved, those are passive verbs. And as soon as I start talking about grammar, I can see some of you just glaze over. I don't want to talk about grammar. But it's important. Here's why. Because if, if something is an active verb, then the subject is doing the action, right? So if these were active verbs, we would be deceiving and we would be enslaving. But, but it's not. They're passive verbs, we are the ones that are deceived. We're the ones that enslave. We're victims of forces that are out of our control. We're enslaved. We're deceived by the world, by our own flesh, by the devil himself. And that helps us to understand why we're gracious toward other people who have not been changed by the grace of God. Because they are victims, they're deceived, they're enslaved to their own passions. And so we're patient with them, knowing that they're victims of forces that are outside of their control. The text goes on saying, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Whoo, this is strong stuff. Malice, that means we wish evil on other people. I wish bad things would happen to them. Envy, that means that when something good happens to them, I'm upset about it. <laughs> I resent any good that happens to them. So, I, so we were people who wished evil on others, and we were upset when something good happened to other people. No wonder it says that we're being hated and hating one another. The hostility in our relationships was reciprocal. Our relationships were bad. We're not able to have good relationships. It sounds like the world we live in, right? Because it is. But the Apostle Paul here is saying that the people of God are called to be different than the world around us. That there's a big difference in what God calls us to be in what we once were. How does that happen for us? We're going to look at it in verse 5, but it says basically it's because he saved us. The Bible loves to draw this contrast between what we once were, but what we now are because of the salvation of God. You see Paul talking about it here. That's why salvation is necessary. That's the need of our salvation. Is this is the condition of our hearts being foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved. Number two, where does the salvation come from? What is, what is its source? 
Now, before I even look at the scripture with you, think about this with me for a second. If verse 3 just said that we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, then where's the one place you know is not going to be the source of our salvation? Us. How, how could we be? We're foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved. Yet, listen to me. Our culture will tell you to look within yourself to find what's right for you. You will hear the culture say, I heard people, you know, stars, I heard them say it this week. That all the answers are found inside of you. And I want you to hear very clearly this morning. I want you to hear me say from the word of God that that thinking is a lie. That is wrong. We're foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved. The answer does not come from within all that. Salvation must come from outside of us. It does not come from within inside of us. We cannot rescue ourselves. We need rescued. And so the source has to be from outside of us. And look what it says. That we lived in malice and envy, hating and hating one another. Verse 4, but when the kindness... And love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Salvation comes from outside of us. It comes from God our Savior. But we can be even more specific about the source of our salvation. Yes, it's God. Yes, it's our Savior. But what is it about God that, that led him, that, that, that made him take the initiative, that made him come and rescue us? Verse 4 says this, but when the, the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his, his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Do you hear what it says about God our Savior? It says that he saved us because of his kindness, because of his love. Because of his mercy that he doesn't give us what we deserve. Because of his grace that he gives us better than what we deserve. Oh, do you allow the kindness of God to lead you to repentance? He's so patient with us. And so God intervened for us. God took the initiative from the outside. God came after us. God rescued us because of his kindness and love and mercy and grace. That's the source of our salvation. God, our Savior, who's kind and merciful and gracious. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your love and your mercy and your grace. Number three. What's this salvation based on? What's the basis of our salvation? Well, again, in verse 5, he tells us what it's 
what it's not based on. You see what he says in verse 5? He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, right? Do you know that? That God doesn't save us because we do good things. So many folks I talked to, I talked to somebody this week who said, well, I'm just trying to you know, have the good stuff I do outweigh the bad, and then I'll be acceptable to God. It's not how it works. God is a holy God who's too pure to even look on evil. 50% plus one doesn't get you in. We must be 100% pure. That's his standard. And so your goodness does not save you. You can't be good enough. Even if you were perfect from now on, you still have a flawed record of sin from your past. When we begin to think we can be good enough and begin to get on that performance treadmill, we can never get off. How much is enough? How do we know that we've been good enough? He tells us it's not about righteous things. We're not saved because of righteous things. He would but let me say this. You can't be good enough to be saved, but I want you to understand you can't be so bad that you can't be saved either. Did you know that? I love the Westminster Confession in chapter 15 where it's talking about repentance it says, there is no sin so small but that it deserves damnation. But there is no sin so great such that we are damned if we truly repent of our sin and turn to God and look to him. So our salvation, the basis of it, it's not grounded on our being good enough or doing good things. Well, what is it based on then? It says, verse 5, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. So it's his mercy, that's the basis of it. What did his mercy lead him to do? To send his son. John 3, 16, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Jesus, the Son, is the one who appeared. When it says here, verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Jesus is the very physical manifestation of the kindness and love of God. You want to know what the kindness and love of God looks like? Look at Jesus who came here to the earth, who lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived, who died the death that we deserved for our sin, so that we can come before a holy God because we get credit for his perfect record, and he has taken the punishment for our sin. That's the basis of our salvation. That's what it's grounded on. Number four, how does it come to us? What is the the means of this salvation? Look at verses five and six. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through, here's the means, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. How does this salvation come to us? What is the means? It comes by the Holy Spirit. 
that gift that God gives to all who recognize their sin and call upon Christ Jesus as Lord. Nobody calls Jesus Lord but by the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit comes, He does something. How is it that the, the Spirit's the means, but, but what does the Spirit actually do? Well, look what it says. It says that when the Spirit comes, He says it's through the washing of rebirth and renewal, all that's done by the Holy Spirit. This washing, the Holy Spirit comes in and he cleanses us by applying the shed blood of Jesus to us so that we can come before a holy God. I think of Isaiah 1, where the people of God are promised, though your sins are as scarlet, you will be as white as snow. The Holy Spirit comes and he cleanses us. It's what baptism symbolizes, that outward invisible sign when we put water on people. It's an outward invisible sign of this inward and spiritual reality where the Holy Spirit cleanses us from sin. So the Holy Spirit comes through this washing, this cleansing. Then it says through rebirth. We're born again. We're a new creation. We're not the same people we were before. I think John chapter 3 where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, nobody sees the kingdom of God unless you're born again. I think of 2 Corinthians 5 that if any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. When the Spirit comes, there's this rebirth that happens. But not just a rebirth. So that we're a new creation, we're not the same person we were before, we're born again. But there's this renewal that takes place. You see that in the text? Through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This renewal means that there's moral and spiritual transformation that follows the new birth. When we're born again, we get a new heart, not a heart that's hard like stone who's resistant and stubborn to God, but a heart of flesh that's soft, that wants to walk in his ways, a heart with new desires. We get a renewed mind as the Spirit helps us to understand the Scripture and convicts us of sin. There's this renewal that takes place as the Spirit enables us to walk in God's ways. He says in verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Justification, this being justified. That means that God declares us righteous. It's a verdict. He declares us righteous through the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus because Jesus took our punishment. And we get credit for his righteousness. So when we're justified, it's a declaration that God makes. But what this is talking about, the washing, the rebirth, the renewal, this is talking about not justification, but regeneration. Justification, God declares us to be righteous because of the work of Christ alone. But this regeneration that the Spirit does means that God not only declares us righteous, it means that God makes us righteous through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who opposes our flesh and gives us a new heart with new desires and a new power to walk in God's ways. We've learned to say it here at Redeemer like this, that God loves broken and messed up people. Right? He declares that that's justification. He declares them to be righteous in his sight because of the work of Christ alone. 
But we've learned to say, but God loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness and in our mess. That's regeneration, that he gives us a new heart and he puts his spirit in us so that we're actually made righteous and learn to walk in his ways. Oh, not perfectly. It's always a fight. But he comes to us by his spirit and makes us new people. Number five, what does it lead to? What's the goal? You see it there in verse seven, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We are heirs. What does that mean? Like oxygen? No, heirs with an H, like we inherit something. Romans 8 and verse 17 says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We inherit eternal life. What do you have to do to inherit something? Well, you don't have to do anything, right? Somebody else has to die. But then we just receive it because of our connection to that person who died. Jesus has died our death in our place. And because of our connection to him, we inherit eternal life. We're promised this unhindered relationship with God in heaven when we're glorified, but we get a foretaste of it now, that we're able to come before the throne of grace, not because we do good things, but because Jesus has opened up the way for us to come before a holy God and receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Oh, we get a foretaste of it now, and fullness of that relationship in the life to come. Let me ask you, do you taste it now? Do you seek him now? Do you come to him now? Do you ever get a foretaste of it? Do you ever get just an appetizer? Quick commercial. This book we're going to read this summer, Gentle and Lowly, I've been reading it, and oh, it's helped me to come to Jesus, to have this, just a taste, just an appetizer of the fullness of relationship with him. I hope you'll take the time to read the book with us this summer. It's been so good. He goes on, the goal is that we would, what, be heirs, that we would inherit eternal life, but that we would have hope. Do you see that? We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Not people who live in uncertainty. Oh, there are going to be things that we didn't anticipate that come up. But we know how this story ends. And it ends with us being with our Savior forever, and nothing can take that away. Nothing can separate us from his love. So we're people who have this assurance, this people that have hope, because all of this is based on the promise and the faithfulness of God, not based on my faithfulness to him, but based on the faithfulness of God to his people. And so we live having this hope. And how do we know when we've got it? What's the proof of this salvation? Well, it is good works. Look at verse 8. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Paul says, listen, those who have trusted in God... 
I want them to be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Now remember, good works are not the basis of our salvation. That is not why God saves us. But good works are the proof. They're the evidence of our salvation. James chapter 2 and verse 26, we're told faith without works is dead. If there's no fruit in your life, fruit of repentance, no fruit of the Spirit, none of these good works that he's writing about, if you're not even struggling to do these things, it's because there's not true faith in your life. Because we're saved, not by our good works, but we are saved for good works. That's the purpose, that's the proof, that's the evidence that we've been saved. We saw it last week in Titus 2 and verse 14. Do you remember? It said, Our great God, at the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us. We usually just stop there. Do we think everything Jesus did was for us? <laughs> it is for us. But there's more. To purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good had the chance to speak at the uh, Shoals Christian during one of their chapel services recently, and I asked, what is the gospel? And it's, they say, Jesus died for my sins to save me. And that's true, that's true, but the gospel's bigger than that. And we looked in Colossians where it says, Jesus died to reconcile to God all things, things in heaven, things on earth to make all things, and oh, you got saved too, <laughs> And oh yeah, you get redeemed too. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is making all things new. That God remains committed to all of his creation. And that he's making all things new. And that he dignifies us and allows us to be a part of things being made new. Because he empowers us by the gospel and by his indwelling spirit. So that we would have the right attitude and actions toward government and all the people around us. And that we would be a people who he created to do good and to build his kingdom such that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven as his body, his hands, and his feet do the work that he calls us to do. Oh, may God do that in this place. As we look to the past, we remember our justification and our regeneration. And as we look to the future, we have this sure hope that we are heirs of eternal life. This life in a new heavens and a new earth when God makes all things right and there's no more death and crying or pain. The effects of sin are done away with. And so as a result, we live in the present moment. Lives dedicated to doing what is good. Lives dedicated to seeing God's kingdom Come here on earth as it is in heaven, that we do these things by the power of his Holy Spirit working in and through us. And that's what empowers our attitude and our actions toward government and society and all the people around us. And we remain faithful knowing that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. May we be a people like that in this place and at this time. Let's pray and ask the Lord to come and do it in and through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hope is not in our faithfulness to you. Our hope is in your faithfulness to us. I pray that you would help us to rest on you. That we would 
seek time with you in your word, that we would come to you, that we would yield ourselves to you, that we would open ourselves up to you, that you might do your work in and through us, and that you'd be pleased to do all this for your glory and for the good of this earth, for the good of your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. We rest on thee.